But here we are in verse 14. After this has happened and the people have been making fun of these believers, Peter says this, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God and with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead. And spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted in the right hand to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray to our great God. 
We ask you, Father, to hear us now, to do in us what we need. We pray that you might not use these words to harden hearts and stiffen necks, but that you might use these words by the power of your spirit to open hearts and save souls, and that you might cause your people in this place this morning to grow in grace. To the glory of God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Fifty days after Passover, the people would celebrate the day of Pentecost. So, forty days after the resurrection of Jesus, he lived and walked on the earth and taught his disciples. There's been a few wonderful studies written on those 40 days of Jesus on the earth and his teaching during that post-resurrection time. But now, here, we've seen him in chapter 1. He's ascended back to the Father, back to that glory that he had with the Father from before the foundation of the world for eternity. And now, The disciples have kept his word. He said, go, pray, and wait. So for some 10 days they've been doing that, and now the day of Pentecost has come, the 50th day after the 40th day he ascended, and this is what takes place. The fulfillment of John chapter 7, verse 39, that the Holy Spirit would come in fullness We know that he had come, that he had been at work in the Old Testament. We read of it in the Old Testament. He's eternal after all the Holy Spirit. So there's no no thinking there in John 7 that he had not existed or that he had not been at work because he had. It was throughout the scriptures. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, when he had said that in John chapter 7, had already received the Holy Spirit descending from heaven and the Father said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit had aided the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. So what was Jesus prophesying of? He was prophesying of this fuller work, this eschatological work. That is the fullness of time had come for the Holy Spirit. Just as the fullness of time had come for Christ to come. Now the fullness of time for the spirit had come. And so the spirit has come. Is remarkable work on the day of Pentecost that set the church on the right trajectory. So Peter explains in the first part of his sermon that this is simply the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. That's interesting to me that there are people who still think that prophecy is outstanding. When Peter clearly says it's been fulfilled right here in your sight, in your hearing. But that's a sermon for another time. It's clear on the face. Joel prophecy is fulfilled on that day. And then he moves. He wants them to understand what this is really all about. This is all about the Holy Spirit coming to point sinners to Jesus. After all, that's what Jesus had said would happen in our series in John, chapters 14 through 16, right? 
That's exactly what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to work in the life of his people and he's going to call sinners to repentance. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, calling people, focusing them, pointing them to Jesus Christ. And so it's no wonder then that Peter, after he explains this is the fulfillment of the prophecy, the Spirit has come in his fullness, great things are going to be taking place, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that he enters into saying, okay, you're going to call on the name of the Lord? Let me tell you some reasons why you ought to. Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he proceeds to tell them about Jesus. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But notice the very first thing Peter wants them to know is that this Jesus in whom they're going to believe was, was a real man. You say, but we know from the rest of Scripture that he was really God too. Yes, but see, Jesus had to come and take on flesh in order to stand in our place as sinners. Though he never sinned, he came to stand in our place as the perfect man. So that we might not have to suffer for our disobedience because he was going to keep the law perfectly. And that he did. He kept the law perfectly. And so we see the first point in the outline, the life of Christ is essential to the gospel. That's what Peter goes to first. He refers to him as Jesus the Nazarene, putting him in a historical context, really a man who really lived in a real place. But this was not just a normal life. He didn't just assume humanity, the flesh, to live a normal life, but he lived it supernaturally. Did you notice that? He was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. And so if they would not say, well, I, I don't know anything about this, he reminds them, Yes, he did it in your midst. You may suppress that truth. You may ignore it. You may even deny it. But it happened. That's Peter's word. People still do that today, don't they? Paul told us in Romans 1 that everyone's been exposed to God. And yet they choose to suppress the truth. So Peter's reminding them, don't, don't, don't suppress the truth here. Don't forget, this happened in your sight. John does a similar thing when he writes the letter, the first letter, the first epistle of John. He begins by saying, this Jesus, whom we handled, we touched. This was no phantasm. This no phantom. This was no, no appearance of a man, he really was. He really did take on flesh. You say, well, I don't even under, I can't understand how God can come and take on flesh. Well, that differentiates you 
and me from God. Because our finite understanding cannot fathom that. And the reason we can't fathom that is, for one thing, we're sinners. That's the obvious, right? But one reason is, is because we, we could never, and we know this, we could never become God. And see, again, that's the issue. God could become a man, but men can't become gods. It's not in our nature, but it was in God's nature to take on flesh. And so he did in the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, the one for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He took on flesh because whatever he didn't assume, he couldn't save. My favorite quote from the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, whatever Jesus did not assume to himself, he could not save. So he assumed flesh so that we might be saved. That's what the resurrection's about. We're not just saved. Our souls, our spirits are not just saved so that we'll go and, and live some, some ethereal life in some, some, some spiritual realm. But we're saved so that we'll be saved completely, body and soul. So we're looking forward to the resurrection. Peter's going to get to that in just a moment. Let's wait on it. So Jesus came. He lived, and he lived supernaturally, unlike any other man had ever lived. He did what he did because he was supernatural. And that's the reason, by the way, that he could live a, a sinless life. We even have the testimony in the John series. We'll get there eventually. We're getting closer and closer. In John chapter 18, verse 38, after Jesus has been handed over in this mock trial to Pilate, Pilate investigates this thing and he hands him back and he says, I find no guilt in this man. Well, of course he didn't. He was dealing with the sinless one. The reason a man could be sinless, the only reason a man could be sinless is because he was God. He was the God-man. Peter begins there, the life of Christ. The life he lived as a man in the flesh is essential to the good news. John Murray. As far as we know, the last communication he made to his dear friend, or, or I should say Jay Gresham Machen, made to his good friend John Murray a little telegram. The active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. The active obedience of Christ is just what we're talking about, that he took on flesh and he lived a perfect life keeping the law because we couldn't, but we're commanded to. You say, oh, are we really? Yeah, that's what the, laws, the law tells us. Do this and live, Leviticus says. Jesus said it more bluntly, be perfect as God is perfect. But we can't. Unless Jesus 
had lived a perfect life, in our place, there'd be no hope for any of us. But Peter's got more to say. He goes on to say that the death of Christ is essential as well. It says here that this man, Jesus, this man delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Isn't it interesting that God dispels any notion of Christ's life and death being a random act? Did you notice that? God had ordained it. It was predetermined. It was planned. This wasn't just a random act or a random time. How many times in the gospel accounts do you read that there were times when the Jewish leaders who were so opposed to Jesus would have taken him and killed him, but something interfered with that. And it was usually Christ. It was Christ saying, no, this is not the time. We're not going to do it on your time schedule. We're not going to do it as you determine. We're not going to do it as you plan it. We're going to do it as the Father and I determined it in eternity. We're going to do it as the Father and I planned it from eternity. And Peter knew that. And that's what he preached. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see that this is... All in the sovereign hand of God. And yet, did you notice? It's what, it's what theologians call the doctrine of concurrence. There, you've got, a, you've got a new theological term you can use this week. Concurrence. What does that mean? Well, God predetermined it. But immediately Peter says, hey, but you're not off the hook. You did it. You wicked men nailed him to the cross. So again, the emphasis in the death of Christ is really interesting. If you'll go this afternoon and read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read about the crucifixion, it's not about Jesus. You ever notice that? I mentioned this Wednesday night. Literally, Matthew says... If we would just translate it with the participles, the crucifying ones. It's about the cruci- it's about the sinners. And that's what Peter makes it about here. Did you notice? It was in the foreknowledge of God, predetermined by God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. We have to we have to go elsewhere in the gospel accounts and in the epistles to learn what the significance of the cross was because the gospel accounts don't tell us. We wouldn't even know what a crucifixion is based on the gospel accounts. We have to read that in secular history because we're just told that sinners did this heinous thing to Christ. We learn from the apostles that that was the atoning work of Jesus Christ taking place. That was the wrath of God being poured out on the Savior. That's the reason the sky turned dark on that Friday afternoon that we 
some people call Good Friday. I often wonder for those who have Good Friday services that they shutter the windows and turn off the lights and make it dark like it really was and then preach about the wrath of God. It's just my curiosity. But that's what happened. God determined it, but these men did it. The death of Christ. But we don't leave Jesus on the cross. We don't have little emblems of cross with some dead figure on it. That would be to deny the scriptures and deny the reality that he is living. He is risen. And that's where Peter goes immediately. Do you notice how quickly he goes from, from he lived, a man lived, to he died, and then he goes to the resurrection. And he says more about the resurrection. That's why this passage is a wonderful passage to preach on a day like this when people's minds are focused on the resurrection more so than perhaps other times of the year, although that's not the right way to be, is it? We should always be thinking about the the resurrected Lord and particularly on the Lord's day. But God raised him up again, verse 24 says, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So he lived, he died, and he was raised. Here's the thing. Do you notice what it says? It was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was possible for Adam to die and to remain in the grave. Wherever Adam was, was laid, whatever kind of rocky slab or piece of earth he was placed in, his remains are still there. The same with Noah, the same with Abraham, the same with Moses, the same with David. From Psalm 16, David says, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand. And he goes on to quote this lengthy quote. And then he says, brethren, I may confidently say in verse 29 to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, what Peter's saying is, come on, I can take you out there. We can go to where David was buried. And if we dig or if we move the rock, We'll find his dust. This passage in the psalm is not about David, even though it sort of kind of reads like it is. But it was David writing prophetically about the Savior who could not be left in the grave. You say, why is that? Why does Peter say that? But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power because he was God, y'all. It's impossible for God to be held by part of his creation. That tomb, that, that cave of a tomb there outside of Jerusalem, that's God's creation. He controls it. It doesn't control him. If you all, any of you all garden, 
or, or do lawns, you know that you don't control your garden and lawns. You try to, I try to, but more often than not, they're, they're the ones dragging me around. But not so with God. God controls it. It was impossible for him, Jesus, to be held in its power. And so God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. The resurrection then is certainly at the heart of the gospel. This doctrine, the resurrection, is the hope. If you have any hope, it's in the resurrection. You say, but it's also in his incarnation, in his perfect life, in his death, yes. But as you can see here, Peter runs quickly to the resurrection. And that's when he pulls out the Old Testament quotations. He's wanting to be sure and understand why. Well, it's one thing for someone to live. And it's another thing for someone to die. Every, everyone that's ever lived has lived. And anyone who's ever lived has died. But no one else has been resurrected. And people struggle with that, don't they? You will, you will have friends, no doubt. Well, you know, I, I don't have any problem with, with the fact that there may have been a great man. In fact, I watched for a while last night. It, it became unbearable at a point. But it was some show about the mysteries of the Bible. And it was particularly talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And they kept speaking of Jesus as being this, this wonderful teacher that walked around Galilee. Wonderful teacher. This wonderful teacher. Well, he was that. He was, a, he was the most, most remarkable and wonderful, singularly distinct from all other teachers in the history of the earth. But he was more than that. That's where people struggle is with the more than that. People can, get, can, can, can latch on to, well, I, I think he was a wonderful teacher. And if we just lived the way he taught us, everything would be better. After all, Paul and John wrote it. All we need is love. I'm talking about Paul McCartney and John Lennon, of course. All we need is love. Yeah, but Jesus' message was more than that. It was the eternal message because he was God. He was eternal. And so Peter, knowing that people would struggle most with the resurrection, spends time on the resurrection Brethren, I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Whoa, wait a minute. It's not the second coming of Christ? It's about his seating, being seated on the throne? No, it's about his resurrection. Isn't it interesting if you just read your Bibles? How simple and clear it is. He promised someone would come, a descendant of David. That's what the genealogies in Matthew and Luke tell us about Jesus. He was in that line. The genealogies tell us he was descendant of David. David says, this is the one. I'm speaking of one. Proleptically, out there, someday, don't know when, talking to you people, 
telling those Old Testament saints, there's one coming who's going to sit on my throne after me like God has promised. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That's the reason Jesus could say in John chapter 18, when they said, are you the king? And he says, that's why I was born. It's to be the king. This reason Hebrews three times tells us that he is seated at the right hand of God, the father. Revelation three tells us that he is seated on the throne with the father. He is ruling forever on that eternal throne. The one that David's little throne only typified. It was only a picture of the throne of God ruling and reigning over all things. And Jesus is in the resurrection, ascended to heaven. He was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Why? Because it was not possible for God to decay. This Jesus God raised up. And Peter again says, and we're witnesses. You can't, you can't ignore this. You can't avoid this. You can't deny this. You can't suppress this, folks. We're witnesses of this. Everyone in this room, the Bible says there's two resurrections. John 5 clearly tells us there's two resurrections. The one is to life in Christ. We can go to Ephesians, we can go to Colossians, we can go a number of places. And the first resurrection is, is the new life. We're resurrected from dead in sin to life in Christ, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Anyone who's experienced that first resurrection, you're a witness that Jesus Christ, too, was raised from the dead. But you're not only a witness to that, but you're also a hopeful participant in the coming of Christ. You're looking forward to his second coming when our bodies will be transformed and will be made into this glorious image of Christ and live forever in the new heavens and new earth. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand. So now he moves from the resurrection to the exaltation, to the ascension. Where Christ is now, what he's doing now. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now he's referring back to the coming of the Holy Spirit in this fullness of time. Jesus is the one who did that, just as he had said he would in John chapter 14. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what the Lord's doing now, is making a footstool. Until I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the gospel. He lived a perfect life, keeping the law. He died a sacrificial death, taking the penalty of our sins. 
He was raised that we too might be raised both spiritually from dead in sin to alive in Jesus and physically we look forward to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he is the first fruit of that physical bodily resurrection that is to come. And Paul says this, that if this didn't really happen, we are of all men most to be pitied and we have no hope. But Paul's point is not that it didn't happen and so we are pathetic. His point is that it did happen just like Peter is saying it did happen and we are to be most hopeful and most happy and most, most living in expectation. And just like John at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, we should live with these words on our lips. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's what we look forward to because we don't serve a dead God. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Savior, one who's been raised and is exalted over all things, ruling and reigning his people. That's the good news. The question then becomes this, do you believe it? And that's a heaven or hell question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe what the Bible says? Well, back to the scriptures, verse 21, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe that Jesus is just who we've seen him to be in this passage and you will be saved. That means you'll be considered not guilty by God, declared not guilty by God, adopted as sons and daughters into his household, the church. He will be at work in you to make you better every day and one day you'll be glorified with a new body. That's the good news. So as we leave today, that's the question that hangs out there. Is do I believe this or do I not? As I said, that's a heaven or hell question. You spend eternity with Jesus, with a tri God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or you spend eternity in hell, separated from God, suffering what's called that, that death that never ends. I would urge you this morning, as Paul did in Acts chapter 17, repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and ask now that you would bless for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.